If you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 today. And we're continuing our new study titled Christianity 101. And I just want to remind you, we've titled it this way because the book of 1 Peter shows us what basic Christianity is all about. It shows us essential Christianity, not exceptional Christianity. Essential Christianity. This is the experience. First Peter describes to us what the experience of every true believer is and ought to be. It shows us how to live in this world for the glory of God and the honor of Jesus Christ. And this is a very relevant study for us because if you recall, Peter wrote this letter to a body of believers that were facing an increasingly hostile culture around them. Just looking at the descriptions that Peter gives in this letter, we know that the believers were being slandered, maligned, mistreated, reviled, and looked down upon by the world around them. It didn't matter if they as believers were doing good. It didn't matter if they were behaving in a winsome way. It didn't matter what they did. Because they had been chosen by God out of this world, they were hated by the world. And God's not indifferent towards any of this. He's not indifferent towards the experience that his, that his children face while living in this world. He knows our frame, that we are but dust. He knows that facing a bristling and increasingly hostile world like ours can become discouraging. And so God starts off this precious letter with a thrilling call of encouragement to those embattled believers by reminding us that if We are born again by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Though the world will reject us, God has chosen us. We are His, and this is miraculous. As Peter says in verse 3 of this letter, we are born again by a miracle of God's great mercy and sovereign will. There we were, lying dead in our trespasses and sins, hating God, hating one another, cut off from the life of God, blind to the truth, hostile to God, cut off from His life. And so in His great mercy, moved with compassion towards us, God Himself came down and His Son Jesus Christ made a way of salvation, and even then He wasn't finished. He comes among us by His Spirit, each and every one of us, and He pushes us. He pushes us into a new sphere of existence and brings us forth into spiritual life, whereby we are now alive to God, alive to the truth, alive to eternal blessings, and alive to a whole new world of spiritual affections. And that's what we looked at last week. In verses 6 through 9, we looked at the miraculous everyday moments of true believers and learned how our new birth as believers not only begins miraculously by God's mercy and will, but also continues miraculously through a supernatural faith, hope, love, and joy that rises to the occasion even in the midst of trials. Believers really are born again. They are really kept by God's power through faith. It's a miracle. One that we should continually be encouraged by. And one that, as Peter says in verse 3, we should continually be blessing God for. And yet, God knew that we still might be thinking, Okay, God, I get it. I understand what you're saying, that my salvation is miraculous every single day from start to finish. But help my unbelief. 
Because even though what you've said about my salvation, Lord, sounds really good, right now, today, this morning, in the midst of my trials and hardships, I really don't see it as all that special from my perspective. And so Peter says in our passage that's set before us today, then get an outside perspective on your salvation then. If you're tempted to think that your salvation and new birth is no big deal and is insufficient to produce continual worship and service to God, then you need to remember that your miraculous everyday salvation, which might seem this morning in your eyes very small and of very little account, it dominates the focus of the prophets, the Spirit of God, the Christ of God, the apostles, and the angels. And something that demanded the attention of the prophets, the Spirit, the Christ, the apostles, and the angels, I would put forward to you today, should concern you as well. Should demand your attention as well. Peter, in the opening of this letter, is absolutely insistent, before he gets to any of the actual commands of how to live in this world for the glory of God, he doesn't want us to miss the primary motivation. He is absolutely insistent that we do not overlook the wonder of our salvation and show he shows us its wonder from the perspective of five different viewpoints. From the viewpoint of the prophets, that's in verses 10 through the beginning of verse 11. Then from the viewpoint of the Spirit, they're in the middle of verse 11. Then from the viewpoint of the Christ, Jesus, at the end of verse 11. Then he looks at our salvation from the viewpoint of the apostles at the beginning of verse 12 and then the angels at the end of verse 12. And this is a really cool passage that's unlike anything else in the New Testament. The next time that you are tempted to think that your salvation is no big deal from your perspective, then God says, borrow someone else's perspective. Remember that your salvation dominates the focus of the prophets, the Spirit, the Christ, the apostles, and even the angels. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to us today. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. That's the wonder of your salvation. And this is the word of God who has appointed his testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have this morning to gather together as your people and to hear your word preached. Father, we know that it is not because of anything in us that this moment is significant, but it is by your promise 
that you have, you have called that it is through the foolishness of what we preach to save the lost and transform the saved. And so, Father, I pray that that would be exactly what happens this morning. I pray that Your Spirit would accompany the teaching of Your Word with power and that You would give us all ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe what You have given to us so that we would be changed from one degree of glory into another, more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know this happens by your Spirit, and so we ask that He would work in in and among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So believer, if you are tempted this morning in the midst of your trials to think of your miraculous everyday salvation this morning as no big deal, and as an insufficient motivation for you to wake up in the morning and actually have a song of praise upon your lips, then you need to remember that your salvation dominates first the focus of the prophets. The focus of the prophets. That's in verses 10 through 11. Do you remember the old expression, familiarity breeds contempt? Though we'd like not to think so, that saying can become true even among believers, and even when it comes to our own salvation. We can grow so accustomed to this idea of grace and forgiveness and salvation and new birth that is ours in Christ Jesus, that it no longer produces in us a sense of worship or awe. Well, if familiarity with our salvation threatens to breed contempt, then let's consider the perspective of those that were unfamiliar with it. Peter writes in verse 10 concerning this salvation. In other words, concerning your salvation, concerning your undying hope, your living hope, your indescribable inheritance, your unlosable salvation, everything that we've talked about in previous verses, concerning your new birth. Peter says the prophets who prophesied about what? About the grace that was to be whose? Yours. What did they do? They searched and they inquired carefully. Believer, if you begin to view your salvation with apathy and disinterest, remember this morning that the glories of your salvation absolutely dominated the interests of thousands of years of men of God before you came. The abundant grace that you now enjoy on a daily basis as a part of your new birth, that living hope, that incorruptible inheritance, that unlosable salvation astonished the minds of such great men like Moses, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the rest. Consider this morning that spirit-empowered men of God like Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, right, and so many more were captivated by the richness of the salvation that Jesus has now delivered to you. That ought to make you sit up and take notice. These faithful prophets of times past who were well aware of God's salvation and grace, even under the Old Covenant, were nonetheless absolutely astonished at what their own writings were saying about the level of surpassing grace and salvation that would daily be poured out upon us. Concerning this salvation, Peter tells us here that these prophets searched and inquired carefully. 
Now those two words are very, uh, very similar to each other, and they both describe exerting considerable effort towards discovering or learning something. To what degree? Well, in the Greek, both of these words are in intensified form, and then when you put them together, it multiplies the intensity. In fact, one of these words, one of the uses of that word inquired in Greek culture, I found out this week, was actually used to describe a dog sniffing out something with his nose, which if you haven't noticed, is a pretty intense activity. Our dog Rocket, if you've ever met him, loves to dig holes. I apologize for anyone who ever moves into a house after us. He'll be walking around the backyard and then suddenly he'll, he'll freeze with his nose held low to the ground. He'll start twitching and sniffing intensely. And then suddenly with a blur of paws, Rocket will start digging like a mad fiend, flying dirt everywhere until literally his body is half underground. He's half terrier. So our dog is absolutely fanatical about uncovering what might be just underneath the surface of the ground. And when he's on a leash, you have to drag him away with him straining on the leash. That's the level of intensity that the Old Testament prophets searched out their own writings and inquired about the grace that would one day be delivered to you, that you now experience this morning. So if you're struggling to see the wonder of your salvation from your perspective this morning, borrow theirs. These prophets, they yearned and they strained and they labored to know more about the salvation that they wouldn't even fully experience to the degree that you do. That's astonishing because they knew a lot. In fact, probably more than most Christians today. For example, the prophets knew from passages like Psalms 22, Isaiah 53, and Daniel 9 that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer, that he would be cut off, crucified, and crushed beneath God's wrath. Second, they knew from passages like Hosea 6, Isaiah 53, and Psalm 16 that the Messiah would rise again, that he wouldn't see corruption, but that he would rather rise to life on the third day and see the results of his own atoning work. Third, they knew from passages like Genesis 3, Psalms 2, and Isaiah 9 that the Messiah would not just be a suffering servant, but he would triumph. He would crush the serpent's head. He would rule with a rod of iron. He would be shown to be the mighty God with the government upon his shoulders. And then finally, the prophets knew from passages like Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 61 that the Messiah would redeem, that he would take the judgment of his people's sins upon himself so that he might be a, quote, light to the Gentiles and salvation to the ends of the earth. The prophets knew a lot about the grace that was to be ours in Christ, but they wanted to know even more. What they wanted to know and what they searched and inquired intensely about was two things, beginning in verse 11. They were inquiring about what person or time, right? Who or when? Those are the only two questions that they had. Okay, who is this Savior Christ that I'm writing about? And when is he going to unleash this, this new covenant, this salvation and grace upon the entire world? Those are the only two questions the prophets consistently had. And we see this, by the way, with the greatest Old Testament prophet that ever existed, the prophet John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist is on death row. If you remember, in verse 19, he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. This is the question. Are you the one that is to come, or shall we wait for another? Who and when? Are you the Christ, or are we still waiting? Regarding those two questions, the prophets searched and inquired carefully. They feverishly desired more about the grace that you are enjoying this morning as you're sitting here. And so here's the point that I want you to see from this first point. If our salvation struck them with wonder... 
who only saw these promises from afar, as Hebrews 11.13 says, then shouldn't it strike us with even more wonder who have received and now even intimately experienced on a daily basis this such great salvation? Believer, you are in a more privileged position this morning as you're sitting here than men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. More privileged than even David and Moses. As our Lord said in Luke 10.24, I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And as Peter himself says in Acts 3 verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him all proclaimed these days. That's us. And so if the wonder of our salvation caused the prophets of old to excitedly search out the Scriptures to know more about it, surely it should cause us to search out the Scriptures also. Or do you view your salvation as so light a thing it no longer merits your intention, attention or study? Men of whom the world was not worthy... Hebrews 11.38, spent their lives searching out the greatness of your salvation. As Hebrews 11.32-40 teaches us, in the midst of their suffering, guess what they were focusing on? Your salvation. In the midst of their suffering, they were focusing on your salvation. Guess what? In the midst of your suffering, what should you focus on also? Your salvation as well. Fix your eyes upon the salvation and grace that is yours in Christ Jesus and study it out. Study it out. Restore the wonder. If you need assistance with this, right, to direct you towards the right passages, I would really recommend to you The Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I know I've mentioned that book before. Grab it. It is worth its weight in gold as a daily reminder of what the gospel means to those who are in Christ. Restore the wonder. Remember that your salvation dominated the focus of the prophets. Study it out in the midst of your suffering. Second, remember that your salvation dominates the focus of the Spirit. Verse 11 tells us that the prophets inquired what person or time. Notice the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Right? So that is the predominant focus of the Spirit's revelation. It is the sufferings of Christ and His subsequent glories. In other words, it's salvation. This is the theme of Scripture itself, going from paradise lost to paradise regained, from spiritual corruption to spiritual restoration, from going from God's wrath to God's redemption. This was the focus of the prophet's writings because this was the focus of the Spirit's revelation. Salvation. Namely, our salvation. The prophets were all about our salvation because the Spirit was all about our salvation. In fact, those two words, indicating and predicting, are in the imperfect and perfect tenses in the Greek, meaning that this is something that the Spirit is repeatedly doing. He was continually pointing towards, continually unveiling, continually highlighting the salvation that would one day be ours in Christ Jesus. This is the theme of God's word, as Jesus himself said in Luke 24, 25 through 27, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should first suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Ever notice that it is often the importance of the person 
that determines the importance of the subject that they're focused on? Right? In other words, I would say what the President of the United States focuses on when he's in his briefings for the day are probably slightly more important than the things that I focus on in my briefings for the day, right? Because he is in a much higher position of authority and importance. Your salvation is the focus of God the Holy Spirit. That's how important your salvation is. That's how wonderful it is. Everything that the Spirit revealed in the Old Testament was driving towards the grace and salvation that would be yours today in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament prophets and writings are not about the law. I hope you don't think that. No, they are about Jesus and the grace and salvation that's found in Him. That's what the Old Testament is about. And so, I would want to ask you a question this day. When's the last time you read an Old Testament prophet to be encouraged in your salvation? If it's been a while, I encourage you to pick one up as the next book that you read in your own Bible reading and add that to your steady diet of Scripture. Because when rightly understood, the Old Testament's main focus is all about pointing us forward to the need of Jesus Christ and the grace and salvation that is found in Him which many of us now enjoy. For consider, if our miraculous everyday salvation is so wondrous that the Holy Spirit took over 1,000 years to slowly describe and predict it just to get people ready to handle it when it arrived, maybe our salvation merits a second glance for ourselves. Perhaps we're not as well acquainted with our salvation as we think we are. So I encourage you to restore the wonder. Remember that your salvation dominated the focus of the prophets. Your salvation dominated the focus of the Spirit. And next you should remember that your salvation dominates the focus of the Christ. Peter reminds us regarding our salvation, the prophets predicted by the Spirit, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Notice, Jesus' sufferings and later glories did not happen just to serve as a good example for us. Nor did Jesus come and live and die and rise just to impart to us good moral teaching that can fill up a Sunday morning, right? No. The sufferings of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glories happened to him in order to save us. This is concerning, as verse 10 says, our salvation. See, we as fallen human beings are born enslaved to sin controlled by sin, dead in sin. We are guilty every day, every single one of us, of rebellion and disobedience against God and are therefore, apart from Christ, under the just wrath of God. The wrath, that wrath will destroy us for all of eternity if we're not delivered from it. And so God in His great mercy made a way of salvation for us. He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And here Jesus as a man, lived a life as that perfect infant, perfect child, and perfect adult that we could never be. And then as God, Jesus took all of God's wrath in our place on the cross and drank it up dry when He died on the cross. And then He rose again and He promises victory and forgiveness and eternal life to anyone and everyone who will confess their sins and surrender to Him as their Savior and Lord. Jesus did it all to accomplish Your salvation. Do you see that the work of the prophets, the work of the Spirit, and the work of Christ was all focused 
to accomplish the, sa- the saving state in which you now sit. That's wondrous. And notice, Peter puts a special emphasis here on the order of Christ's work here, doesn't he not? I don't want you to miss this. Peter doesn't just say, the sufferings of Christ and the glories. No, he reminds his audience of the, subs- of the sufferings of Christ and the what? Subsequent glories. In other words, one came before the other. When it came to Jesus establishing a way of salvation for us, suffering came first, then came glory. This is just, by the way, what the prophets had always predicted from Genesis 3.15 where the seed of the woman would be bruised in the heel before crushing the head of the serpent. There would be first suffering, then glory. To Psalms 22 where the blessed man is forsaken in verses 1-18 through before he's given the kingship over all in verses 18-31. through To Isaiah 53 where the Lord's servant suffers and first dies in verses 1-9 through before he enters into his glory in verses 10-12. through First suffering, then glory, and then finally Zechariah 12, verse 10. These are just some examples. Where the Messiah is revealed coming down in glory out of heaven to Israel's help, and he is described as one whom they have pierced already before the glory. First suffering, then glory. Just as the prophets predicted, when Jesus established a way of salvation, it was always suffering first, then glory. The order here is critical. To remember. And Peter emphasizes it here because it's going to be a major, 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 major theme to his letter. Neither Christ nor any of his followers who follow him on the path of salvation will ever receive a crown of glory first without first enduring a crown of thorns. The path that Jesus tread we must follow first suffering, then glory. As Peter says later in chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. First suffering, then glory. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. First suffering, then glory. And as Paul himself comforted the church in Lystra by saying in Acts 14.22, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. First suffering, then glory. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of salvation And this is the way of all of Christ's followers. As elect exiles, it is always first suffering, then glory. The cross before the crown. So I encourage you to restore your wonder this morning. Remember that your salvation dominated the focus of the prophets. Your salvation dominated the focus of the Spirit. Your salvation focused the dominate, uh, dominates the focus of Christ, who even right now ever lives to make intercession for you as you are called to walk the very same path in which He walked. Next, if you're struggling to see the wonder of your new birth, remember that your miraculous everyday salvation dominates the focus not only of the prophets, the Spirit, and the Christ, but also dominated the focus of the apostles. That's the beginning of verse 12. Peter says here that concerning these prophets who wanted to know when and where the the, uh, 
Oh, when and in whom the fulfillment of the writings of salvation would come, verse 12 says this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. In other words, God revealed to those prophets of old that all of those prophecies about future salvation and grace would serve future generations more than it would serve them. The best example I have of this is pictured in Daniel chapter 8, where Daniel had just received this huge prophecy that included details about the temple being destroyed and four world empires being raised up and someone called a son of man coming to rule the world through an everlasting kingdom. And Daniel comes to the end of this thoroughly confused, and he writes in Daniel 8, 13, following, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. You could say he sought and inquired carefully. But this is what Daniel is told in verse 17. Understand, O son of man, the vision is for the time of the end. In other words, it's not primarily for you, Daniel, to understand this prophecy, but for those who come after you. And that's exactly what Peter describes here. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced. That doesn't mean that their prophecies was of no benefit to them. No, they knew because of these prophecies that God was a saving God who saved sinners by His grace through the merits of a coming future perfect sacrifice. They knew all of that, they just didn't know who or when. That fuller knowledge was reserved for a generation yet to come. In other words, you. So that, in a way, the Old Testament prophets spread a table of redemption truth that others might later declare and feast upon. Now that's exactly what Peter says next when he says that these redemptive truths that the Spirit revealed through the prophets have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You know what that's saying? It's saying that your salvation was the obsession not only of the prophets, the Spirit, and the Christ, but also the obsession of the apostles. Those those early preachers, including our author Peter, And the other apostles preach no other message than this message, the good news of the prophesied salvation and grace that is now fulfilled in ours in Christ Jesus. Your salvation was their obsession. To such a degree, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I am resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing else interests me, and that is a big enough subject for me to conquer. Right? Or again in Galatians 6.4, I have no boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'll exalt in. Or again in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll preach about it all day long. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. This is the message that the Spirit continually predicted through the prophets and continually preached through the apostles, and it's a message that ought to dominate your focus as well on an everyday basis. The message of your salvation. You ought to be preaching the gospel to yourself each and every day. Because how wondrous is your miraculous everyday salvation? It dominated the focus of the prophets, the spirit, the Christ, the apostles, and then finally it dominates the focus of the angels. Think about that. This is really something. Peter says that these truths, these realities about our salvation are things into which angels long to look. I think that's fascinating because think about this. Angels have one purpose, right? One focus, to glorify God, to magnify Him, right? To exalt Him and make His name great. And Peter tells us here that they are engaged in that great task of glorifying God, and as they are, 
as they are, the angels continually learn, yearn to look into our salvation. I mean, you would think the glories of heaven would produce such an abundant riches of means by which to worship God that they'd be just fine. But here they do, they see our salvation and they are absolutely captivated by it. They who behold the glory of God day and night are looking at you because something wondrous is going on in you. Think about that. (laughs) That is wondrous. They continually yearn to look into our salvation. Why? Because the angels understand that this salvation, our salvation, is one of the greatest motivations and demonstrations of God's glory in the universe. And they're completely left out of it. They recognize that this grand, sweeping, redemptive plan of God is an, lies in an entire universe of reasons to worship God. And they will never personally experience or fully understand it. Have no doubt, the angels are involved in the salvation that we enjoy. From start to finish, when you study the Gospel of Luke, you, you find out it was angels who came to the priest Zechariah, angels who came to Mary and Joseph, angels who sang at the Messiah's birth, who ministered to Jesus after his testing in the wilderness, who strengthened him in the Garden of Gethsemane, who stood by should he call down 10,000 angels from heaven, who declared his resurrection, who accomplished his ascension, And these angels, as the book of Hebrews says, are those who have become ministers of those who will inherit salvation. So angels have been involved in our salvation from start to finish, but angels have not been chosen to receive salvation. That wonder has been bestowed upon us and upon us alone. Angels can never have a first-hand experience of salvation. They have no idea what it's like to repent, to believe, to be forgiven. They have never experienced what it's like to be objects of God's undeserved mercy and redeeming love. They have no conception of that. You do. As Isaac Watts once wrote, never did angels ever taste above redeeming grace and dying love. Only we can, out of all God's creation, only we can. And so God is uniquely revealing His power and glory to the angels through the wonder of our miraculous everyday salvation. Wow. I mean, that's why Luke 15.10 says that every time a sinner repents, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. And that's why 1 Corinthians 4 9 says that we as believers are a spectacle to the world, a spectacle to angels, and a spectacle to men. And that's why Ephesians 3.10 says that God is making known his manifold wisdom, his glory, right, to rulers and authority in the heavenly places. How? Through the church. Through our miraculous everyday salvation. It's a sobering truth to think about, but because of the wonder of our salvation, we as believers are living on a stage being observed by an audience, even this morning, that includes even the angels in heaven. That's why in Exodus 25.20, the Ark of the Covenant had carved upon it two angels whose faces were continually bent towards looking upon what? The mercy seat. It was a picture of this reality, that the angels will never know what it's like to repent, to believe, to be forgiven, to be born again. They can never experience what it's like to be objects of God's great mercy and saving power. They can never respond 
or give glory to God for this great salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, but you this morning can. You this morning can. This morning, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you can give God glory in a way that even the angels in heaven can't. You can repent of your sins and you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and receive the new birth by God's grace. And you who have heard God's word preached to you can respond in a way that the angels never can. You can repent of what God has shown you this morning and you can turn and be changed and believe the good news and start this next week wondering in your salvation more than you did last week. This is our unique privilege. So I want to encourage you this morning, man, do not look upon your salvation with apathy or ambivalence. Look upon your salvation with great wonder. If you're struggling to do that, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. We will help you. We will give you resources because there is one thing and one thing always that you should be doing as a believer. It is praising God because praise befits the upright. You ought to be captured with the wonder of your salvation and telling of his salvation from day to day. Look upon your salvation with great wonder and bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused you to be born again. Never forget that though we will suffer in the footsteps of Jesus, to be born again is to be a privileged people out of all creation. It is to be the eternal beneficiaries of a salvation that captivates the focus of the prophets, the spirit, the Christ, the apostles, and the angels themselves. As the hymnist once wrote, oh, the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, just to think that God loves me. Or again, when he saved my soul, cleansed and made me whole, that took a miracle of love and grace. All this is yours. The longing of all the ages and the angels has been bestowed upon you. So bless God for the new birth that he has given you. Let your wonder lead to worship. And as we'll see next week, let your worship lead to holy living. It's within the grip of this wonder that all Christ-exalting lives are built. This is the word of God from 1 Peter 1, 10-12, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until our suffering gives way to glory. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have had this morning to hear your word taught. And Father, we thank you for the new birth that is ours in Christ, this wonderful miracle. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done on our behalf. We thank you for how he lived and he suffered and he died and he rose again, and he has entered into glory, establishing a path of salvation for us to walk in. Father, we thank you that all those who trust in him are born again and made new creations. I pray that if there is someone here this morning that has not trusted in Jesus Christ, doesn't know about this new life, I pray, Father, that they will have tasted the wonder of your salvation this morning. 
and that they would confess their sins to you and confess their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. For the rest of us, Father, help us not to be dominated in our focus by our earthly circumstances. Help us to be dominated in our focus with the glory that has been bestowed upon us. The wonder of the ages and the angels. Give us grace, Father, this week to search and inquire carefully into the things that have been given to us in Christ Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.